Well, today is a special Sunday because it is our monthly communion Sunday. So after service with um, somewhat of a break, uh, believers will get together and partake of the bread and cup together in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to invite you to participate with us. If it is your first time attending a communion service, we have a newcomer's uh, welcoming ministry that want, want to greet you and just give you the right hand of fellowship as fellow Christians and welcome you to our body. So they'll be meeting to, our, to my right, so please meet with them after service. <clears throat> well, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We'll begin this morning's study with a brief review of last week's study. Now, if you remember, we structured our study of Titus chapter 2 with four words. All, all these words start with the letter C. Four words that start with the letter C. The first word is contrast. Contrast. The chapter begins with Paul in chapter 2 verse 1, contrasting Titus with false teachers. Look with me to, the verse, to verse 1. But as for you, just those four words, the Apostle Paul is contrasting Titus from the false teachers he had just talked about in chapter 1, verse 16. These leaders who profess to know God, but because they deny Him by their works, Paul uses strong adjectives to describe these men. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good works. They're abominable, he says. They're objects of disgust. They are disobedient. They're unwilling to hear the truth. And therefore, they're adokimized. They're unfit. They're unqualified. They have no benefit to the church. They are worthless for any good work. Paul is... is just used, spent this time describing these leaders, and he turns his attention to Titus, and he says, But you, Titus, but as for you, you are to be different. And then here's a second word, the command. The second, letter, the second word that starts with the letter C, the command. He commands Titus, what? To teach what accords with sound doctrine. Remember that last week, saints? Paul commands Titus, not here, to teach sound doctrine, but to teach what accords to sound doctrine. The word is prepo in the Greek. Teach the life that fits sound teaching. Paul is saying that right doctrine is only one kind of life that is consistent with the Word of God. Only one kind of life that fits sound, healthy teaching, Christ-centered words. And Paul tells Titus, to teach that, teach the practical requirements for everyday life that suits right doctrine. Teach the life that is consistent with the scriptures. It's talking about character, habits, attitudes that are in line with the word of God. <clears throat> the third word is a conclusion. Conclusion. The purpose of these commands and we went through chapter 2, and Paul is telling Titus, these are the things you must teach. This, this right life for believers is not an option. It's an imperative. It's a must. Christians must live right lives. 
Because there are severe consequences if you do not. And the consequences are not personal. Consequences are relational. Meaning, it affects people's view of the Word of God. When Christians do not live by the Word of God, Christians aren't attacked. Christians aren't dishonored or maligned or reviled. Who gets reviled? Who gets maligned? It's God and His Word. Look at verse 5. In order that, for the purpose of, that the Word of God may not be reviled. The first compelling reason that you and I must live right lives is the Word of God is at stake before non-believers. If we drop the ball, God's Word gets blasphemed. They look at our lives and say, well, God's Word can't be true. God's Word is a joke. Christianity is a sham. Look at that guy's life. Look at that leader's life. Look at that pastor's habits. In other words, how you and I live will directly determine how people will feel about the Word of God. So when a Christian older man is not what he ought to be, a Christian older woman is not what she ought to be, a Christian wife, young woman, a Christian young man is not what he ought to be, then the Word of God is maligned. And uh, we studied last week how the world really could care less about sound doctrine. I mean, they don't judge our theology, right? They don't really are concerned about unconditional election, about inerrancy of Scripture, about lordship salvation. They don't judge our doctrine. They judge our lives. So Paul tells Titus, this is at stake. Believers must live holy lives. Therefore, Titus, stand firm and teach. And that Greek word is not caruso, preach. It's not didache, teach. It is laleo, which means constantly talk about it. In the pulpit and outside the pulpit. When you're visiting them at homes, during meals, 24-7, constantly remind the people the importance of right life. Because of what is at stake. Then he goes down to Verse 8, so that they will have nothing bad to say about us, that they'll be ashamed, that they hate our doctrine, they hate the fact that we believe in the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone, but when they look at our lives, because our lives are above reproach, our lives are blameless, I mean, your co-workers will have to say, you know what, you're a good worker. Your fellow students will say, you know what, you're honest, you don't cheat. Right? Your, your, your brothers and sisters, your husband or wife, Though they disagree with us theologically because of our lives, they're ashamed. They're nothing bad to say about us. Second purpose. And the third purpose is verse 10. That we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Just by our lives, we are proclaiming the doctrine of God that He is what? That He is our Savior. And what has He saved us from? He saved us from sin. It is readily apparent. That our God is true and that our God is indeed a Savior because we live a life separated from sin. Well, that is powerful. Right? The contrast that Paul makes. The command that he gives, Titus. And the conclusion, the, the reason behind the command. And from this point on, rest of the chapter concerns is concerned with the fourth word, character. 
character. <coughs> the character that believers are to adorn in their lives. You know, last week was Mother's Day. So last, last Sunday evening, we had our parents over for Mother's Day dinner. And my mom was uh, with, my, with my wife, and she was asking her, well, how did James's Mother's Day sermon go? Did he talk about moms and preach on women? And it was then she realized, well, you know, he didn't talk about mothers at all. In fact, he didn't even talk about women. It was just a sermon that was very strong, very rebuking. And I told her, that's right. You know, I wanted to teach on women, Titus 2, 3 through 5. But I had to teach on Titus 2, right? Set the whole thing up. And then I got stuck on one. So I told my wife, you know what? We'll get to women this week. And I told several women, a few, few women, you know, we'll get to women this Sunday. But I realized, before we go to verse 3, we need to go to verse 2. So women, hang in there. We'll get to you soon. Delayed a few weeks. We're going to have to spend some time on chapter 2, verse 2. The intentions are sincere. We'll get to the women soon. But today we want to study character, uh, characteristics of older men that bring honor to God's word. Characteristic traits that believers are to adorn in their lives, specifically older men. Go with me to verse 2 of Titus 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul categorizes all the people in the church into five categories. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then finally church leaders. With those five categories, every single person fits somewhere in those five categories. And Paul starts with the older men. He addresses older men. Now, the Greek word there is presbytura, and it's not talking about elderly office. It's talking about elder in terms of age. Now, specifically, this was a technical term used in Greek to denote someone who was over 50 years old. A man who was over, someone who was over 50 years old. That's why in Luke 1, I believe 19, Zacharias says, How can I give birth? Because I am presbyteros. I'm an older man. I'm above 50. I don't have the ability to produce a child. So Paul, by using this term, is pointing to men in his congregation that exceeded that age. But by the use in this context, they rightly translate it as older men. Not old men, but older. Therefore, it applies to us. Though, at the age of 33, I don't feel like an older man, but in this context, I am an older man, right? And all of us are older to someone else. Even I think Derek has someone younger than him at church. I don't know if Tim's, Tim's not here today, but he usually does. So all of us, all men, are older to someone else. And because these are marks of maturity, this applies to every single Christian, male and female. Paul tells Titus, look, look around your congregation and note the older men. And Titus, you need to begin with older men. You're teaching on sound life. Because it is so crucial that older men are godly. 
it is so crucial that you focus on older men. The church today, I think, they do not seem to understand how precious older saints are in the church. It seems older men are ignored in the church. They're set aside, they're neglected. We see this youth culture in the world, and it has come into the church as well. I mean, we've seen signs, I've seen signs of churches, worship devoted solely for Gen Xers. You guys seen that? Right? Or worship devoted purposely for Gen Yers. But what about Gen M's or Gen P's, right? Why is it they don't have worship geared for the older folks? Why? Because of the youth movement. Heard of a church where they made a church-wide policy decision saying anyone over 40 cannot serve as deacons in the church. Anyone over 40 cannot serve as deacons. They want to focus on the young people. They want the leaders of the church to be younger men and younger women. This is such a warped view of life and a warped view of ministry. They do not realize, and maybe we don't realize the church, because we're so young, relatively, that older men, they are a treasure. They are a tremendous blessing in the life of the church. Older men bring spiritual experience, spiritual strength, endurance, wisdom to all of us. And I look forward to the day when we will have many older men in the life of Cornerstone. Because it will only strengthen us, strengthen our faith, strengthen our worship and our walk before God. Older men are a treasure treasure of wisdom and understanding. That is why God explicitly commands in the scriptures to respect and honor those who are older than we are. Those who are aged, who have walked with Him for a long time. Leviticus 19.32, it says, Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly. It's a command. When someone older walks in the room, you are to stand up and show him honor. Show, show, show her respect. Job 12.12, 12, wisdom is with the aged, with long life is understanding. Now, there is a qualifier. There is an important qualifier. Because age in of itself is not a virtue, right? Everybody grows old. In fact, you can even say that age is overrated because there are many ungodly older men, very ungodly older women. Growing old is not an option. We'll all grow old. Virtue is in growing in maturity, right? Growing up. Growing old is no virtue. It's growing in maturity. So, an older man is a treasure, only if they walk in the way of righteousness. Only if they walk in the way of righteousness. There is no value to older man if he is not godly. That is why Paul commands Titus here in Titus 2.2. 2. It is so crucial that old men have these character traits. That they have a life that fits sound doctrine. Because as older men, they set the pace of the church. They set the standard in terms of holiness. 
They are the examples that everyone else looks up to. Everyone. The trickle-down effect, it begins with the older men. It is essential that older men, and we'll talk about older women in the future, that older men and women are godly, they are devoted to the Lord's work, that they are faithful to God and to God's work through all the stages of life. With everything life throws at them, they show themselves to be truly faithful to the Lord. So Titus Titus says, begin with the older men. That's the first group you ought to focus on. And he focuses that here on verse 2. Now, I gotta make a qualification, one more qualification here. I am 33 years old. I am a younger man. I, I am too young to be preaching a sermon to older men, right? Only way I have a clear conscience doing this is because of our, it's our church. Cornerstone. You guys, you guys know me and I know you. But, realistically speaking, I'm just an intern in life, right? You know, intern pastor, intern resident doctor. I'm an intern in life. I'm an intern in ministry. That is why in studying this week, it was such a challenge for me to study this and to teach this. Because if it is just doctrine, I can teach this. Because what is doctrine? It's just propositional statements. But I'm not teaching doctrine today. I'm teaching right life. That's why it is so different. It is such a challenge. It has yet to be seen if I will be a godly older man. Yet to be proven. Yet to be seen. But let's lay these out there for all of us. That we can all aspire to these six traits of a godly man. Godly older man. That upholds the word of God. Again, these are marks of maturity. Therefore, it applies to everyone here. And Paul says, when we... Uh, achieve these traits in growing degree, the Word of God is upheld before the world. The first one is sober-minded. Sober-minded. The verb means free from um, rashness, from excess, from passion, confusion. The literal meaning of the Greek word is without wine. So it gives us kind of understanding what the word means. When someone is influenced by wine, they're given to extremes. Extreme happiness to extreme depression. Reckless behavior to paranoia. I mean, they're just going everywhere. Well, an older man, he is to be, in one word, temperate. Oxford Dictionary says, moderate from extremes, not excessive. Calm, restrained. You know, it means that his life is marked by moderation. <clears throat> One trait of his life is stability. He's not a pendulum swinging back and forth from extremes of life, but he is a steady ship, a compass pointing north, headed towards God. Let me highlight three areas where he is temperate. In the area of emotions, in the area of emotions, his attitude is stable. He's consistent and balanced to the joys and the trials of life. Through the good and bad, 
He is temperate from extremes in his emotions. And we see this quality in Job's life, right? When he was wealthy, he was rich, he had many children, servants, material possessions. He wasn't mildly happy. He wasn't living in sin. He wasn't living to please himself. No, he feared God even when he was prosperous. And then in one day, when all that was taken away, in Job chapter 2, he was covered with sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He was so racked in pain, he took a piece of broken pottery and he scraped himself as he sat among the ashes because he was in such pain. Only one left to him is his wife. And what does she say? Right? Why don't you curse God and die? Those aren't encouraging words. Now what does Job say? You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He is sober-minded. Through the joys of life, trials of life, he is steady. That's an older man. I think that's what an older man has that young man just really has a difficult time having. Right? I was talking to an older man here and he was saying, you know, for us, you know, I talk to guys and I mean, they, you know, get into a car accident, get a ticket, fight with their spouse, lose a job, and they're just like, the world is just caving in. Dark night of the soul and life is over. I was talking to one older man. He says, "Man, I think I've gotten fired like six, seven times in my life. I think I've been out of a job totally like years of my life. And through all of that, God has taught me He's faithful, and He's continuing on. See, you can't learn that from FOF. You can't learn that at a retreat. You learn that through life, and that's what older men ought to have because they've gone through life holding on to the Word of God." A mature godly man takes all this in, he soaks it all in, and his response is with moderation in his heart. Knowing that all is under the sovereignty of God, when the times are good, he knows. God is sovereign, and he knows it's not going to last. He knows, well, I'm the lucky few, I'm just blessed, I'm special. I have a special part in the heart of God where he's just going to give me joy. You know, the older godly man knows. God is blessing me, but it's not going to last. But you just trust in the Lord. And when times of difficulty come, response is moderation. Because he knows even at those low times, God is sovereign. God is changeless. Do not go from one extreme to another. Second area is sober in possessions. Sober in possessions. When you're young, you want the biggest house. You have this, this insatiable greed. You want to grow old and be rich. You want to buy the best car, most expensive car. You want all the gadgets. Anything that does automatically, you want to buy it in the car, right? More the better, right? You want to lower the car, raise the car, change the color. I mean, you want to get it just fully loaded. A new gadget comes out, you want to buy it the next day. You've got to have this new thing because it can do something that the older model couldn't do, right? You want to travel the world, see everything, right? Stay in the best hotels. With ears of godly living, the older man learned these things do not satisfy. He doesn't buy things to impress people. 
He doesn't buy things to stroke his ego. Name brands do not appeal to him. For him, buying a new car is not important in life. Buying the biggest house, having the nicest clothes, because he's realized all those things do not satisfy. They all wear out. The answers are not there. When he was young, it was a matter of accumulation. But through, through time, he realized they really had very little value. So he's sober-minded. He's temperate. And finally, in life pursuits, in terms of career, in terms of hobbies, in terms of entertainment, young men pour their energy into such things. They spend hours on video games. They spend hours working on a jump shot or their short game. They work on hours on fantasy leagues and, and their career and the mar- job market and, and making more money. Not an older godly man. They've done all that. Not only they've done all that, but they've seen people do that. How's that? And they realized that those aren't the crucial things of life. When he was young, he had a thousand dreams. He wanted to accomplish a lot of things. But as he looked back upon his life, he realized only a few things had true eternal value. God, family, and church. So he's sober-minded about hobbies, about career, entertainment. He's sober-minded. First trait of an older man that is to be taught. Second is dignified. Dignified. The Greek word is semnous. It means um, serious-minded, someone who is stately. It is someone who is worthy of respect, honorable, venerable. Paul uses the same word to describe the elder in 1 Timothy 3.4. He manages his household so well that his children obey him and with proper respect. Like children, they're honest. They don't respect you. They're not going to, you know, right? They're not going to say what they don't mean. They're honest. And at home, because he's so dignified and grave that his own children obey him with proper respect. He's talking about a man who is not frivolous, who is not fickle, who is not just... Silly with life. Talking about a man who is serious and sober-minded. He has self-respect. Respect for others. Therefore, his children respect him. And his wife respects him. It does not mean they are boring people. It does not mean he's just gloomy and sad and serious. It means he's not a flippant guy. You know, there's some guys you can't take seriously. You just can't. The words carry no weight. Because every other sentence is a joke. Their approach to life is just so light and carefree that he commands no respect and he even seems like he wants no respect. But no. An older man that honors the Word of God is that he is dignified. It's worthy of respect. And this is where I have to lean on others to really understand, you know, I'm 33. I could probably stand up here and tell you all the ways I've suffered and learned and been grave and serious 
in my life, but come on, I'm 33. What, what do I know? So I have to go to an older man and quote him. He's someone about 60 years old, and from his perspective, what causes gravity in the heart of a man? Let me just quote to you a lengthy quote. I think it's worth our time. They've seen too much and felt too much to be trivial. They've buried their parents in most cases. They've stood in hospital waiting rooms while those they loved died. They've been waiting for the surgeon to come out and explain what happened in the cancer surgery to a life partner. They've watched the child rebel against him. They've watched the child die of leukemia. They've watched the child die of cancer. They've seen it all. They've felt it all. They have borne the burdens of their own life and family and the burdens of a myriad of other people with whom they have shared life. They've come to the disillusioning reality and fact that the world is not going to get any better. And they they couldn't make it any better and neither can anyone else. They've lived through all the promises. And they're down on the other side of it. And they know with an honesty that life is the way it is because of man's sin. Things aren't as funny as maybe they were when he was young because life is too serious. End quote. Mark, an older man who's mature, who's godly, they're sober-minded, and they're grave, they're dignified. They understand the seriousness of life. I was talking to a um, person at church, asking the person how old the person was. You know, I forget. And the person was telling me, like mid-20s. Like, you need to like put away your toys. You need to put away the silliness. and You need to stop acting like that. You, man, you're mid-20s? You need, you need some gravity in your heart. You need some seriousness because life is serious. Third mark is self-control. Self-control. The Greek word is sophroneo. The compound word. And self-control maybe connotes a, diff, a wrong understanding. It's not discipline uh, limited to the external discipline. It's really talking about discipline of the mind. The first word is Sophia, wisdom. Second word is talking about control. So wisdom, controlled wisdom, that's what the word is pointing to. So really, the, the translation is self-controlled, but, the, but maybe the better rendering might be sensible. Maybe discernment, discretion. It is talking about a disciplined mind. They have a clear mind. They have a clear set of priorities with which they navigate to the course of life. First Timothy 3.2, same word. The New American Standard Version translates that word prudent. Prudent. It is the same thing that older women are to tell the younger women in Titus 2.5 to be self-controlled, telling younger women to be wise, to be sensible, to be prudent. It is being thoughtful, earnest, cautious, thinking deeply. It is wisdom. What is wisdom? It's not just knowledge. It's knowing the truth and doing it. That's what this describes. Young men talk, just talk a lot. You know, they have dreams and they say all these things that they're going to do. But they have no follow through. They don't carry it out and they don't finish. 
not older godly men. They know what to do and they do it. They stay at the task and they finish. First Chronicles 12.32 speak of men like this. Men of Issachar, they, they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do when they did it. They understood the times and they, they did it. First Chronicles 12.32 it's self-control to do the right thing. They know what is right and they have the discipline. Young men and women know the right thing. They lack the discipline to carry it out. Older men are to be marked by this character trait. Now, three final ones. These are more positive virtues that Paul, Paul sums up in his final statement. Sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. The word sound there means healthy, without weakness, without disease, without debilitation. They're whole in these three areas. The first one is, the fourth one now is faith. They're sound in faith. They have a healthy faith. They have a spiritual faith that is healthy, whole, well, sound, and solid. It means that through the fall seasons of their life, their faith is unwavering. The fact that it's healthy means it's still growing. It is still passionate. It is still walking in the Spirit, growing in the Word of God. I mean, they've been through rough times. They've seen a lot. They've been through it. But they don't doubt. They don't question God. They never lose trust in God's plan. They never lose hope in God's sovereignty. They never accuse God of disappointing them. They never doubt the truth of Scripture. His faith is so strong, is so sound. His faith holds up his life. He's marked by that. In fact, he holds up his whole family by his faith. The whole church is held up by his faith. When his wife is struggling with faith, children are doubting the Lord. When people in the church are struggling, they look to him and he is strong as oak. His roots are healthy. He's bearing fruit through all seasons and he's sound in faith. His faith is courageous. His faith is battle-hardened. I mean, he's been at the hospitals. He's been at the funerals. He's been through the the worst that life can throw at a man. And yet, his faith is unmoved. Wow, isn't that awesome? Therefore, he is someone to emulate. He's an example to the whole church. All men and women, when they doubt their own faith, they look to him. And they draw strength from his faith. And they follow in his footsteps. Fifthly, he is healthy in love. He is healthy in love. Meaning love towards God, love towards man. You know, he's not a bitter man. Nothing worse than an old man who is bitter. One of the saddest things in the world, there are so many old men, older men who are just bitter. Who just give up on life. 
give up on God, give up on family. All they do is just flitter away and just waste life because they're so angry. They're angry at the world, angry at their family. They cannot forgive and they cannot love. Well, not this man. He is a man who loves. He joyfully bears one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. He serves joyfully. He sacrifices at home. He sacrifices at church and in the community. He is a man who knows what ought to be loved and what ought not to be loved. He has discerned these things with wisdom. He's learned to love when love is not returned. He's learned to love when his love is rejected to keep on loving. He's learned to love when love isn't deserved. Learned to forgive. Learned to be patient. 1 Corinthians 13. His love is true love. It is patient. It is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. He's, he's not an arrogant man. He does not seek his own because of love. His love is such that he isn't easily provoked. When someone harms him, wrongs him, he does not take it into account. He never rejoices in somebody else's, somebody else's sin. But he rejoices with the truth because he loves God and he loves the Word of God. He has such a love that he bears all things. He believes all things and he hopes all things because love never fails. He doesn't love out of emotion. He loves out of principle. Family, friends, people in the church. He doesn't love because of emotion, because he feels like it. He loves out of principle. And then there's the final thing, the familiar thing. He is sound in perseverance, steadfastness, endurance. That's why I can't preach this personally. You know, I just started the race, all of us, all of us, we've just started this race. But this older man, at the tail end of his life, he can say, like Apostle Paul, I fought a good fight. I ran a good race. I, w- I endured. I was steadfast. I was patient through it all. Didn't lose heart. He endured to the end. His body might be weaker. His body is weaker. But his spirit is stronger, for he has soundly endured to the end. Well, older men, relative to the church, you older men are precious in the sight of God, are precious at Cornerstone. You guys are treasures to us. Do we realize that the church looks to us in these areas of being sober? being dignified, being temperate, having sound faith, sound love, and sound steadfastness. May God, that is our prayer, may God raise such men at Cornerstone, men who are progressing in these areas. Let's pray.
Our gracious Father, as we consider this picture of a godly older man in Titus 2, I sense in my heart maybe a little bit of jealousy. Oh, how I want to embody such traits. I believe that's the heart of all believers here. That, that these are the traits that we want to be part of our lives. That when we're in our fall season, we can be treasures and gifts to our family and to our church. Lord, um, right doctrine is in a, in a way easy. It is simple. But right life, it is such a challenge for us. There is such a temptation to deceive others and to deceive ourselves by hearing the truth and not obeying it. Just listening to the Word of God, taking it in in our minds, but not having the resolve to obey it. There is such a temptation to live the Christian life in the externals only. Lord, you'd grant faith and courage to each believer here not to give up on that fight for right life. That we would seek and commit ourselves every Lord's Day to be doers of the Word of God so that the world might see our lives and they would have to honor the Word of God. They would be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And they would acknowledge the doctrine of God, God as Savior, saves from sin because it is evident that He has that you have saved us from sin. May this be um, the testimony that we leave as saints here at Cornerstone. In Jesus' name, Amen.